AM 830, KLAA. Orange County, Los Angeles, and Inland Empire. This is Rush on the Links. In your life have you seen anything like that? Is it his time? Yes! Now on the team, your host from Anaheim, California, Trent Rush and Nico Bellini. What a week to be talking some golf. We're fired up to be with you here. Rush on the links. I'm Trent Rush. Nico Bellini hanging out with us here in studio as always. Nico, great to see you. Ryder Cup week. It is on Team USA. Getting ready to take on the Europeans at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin. We got a really fun show coming your way here this afternoon. We're going to hear from Mike O'Reilly. He's the director of golf at Kohler. Oversees Whistling Straits and all of those Kohler courses Fun breakdown with him of Whistling Straits coming up in a bit. Nico, for you, I know you're getting ready for the U.S. Mid-Am coming up uh, next week. How are you feeling? I mean, now is the time, right? Crunch time, preparation. Are you ready to go? What's going on? What's the latest? Well, I'm not going to change much, right? Because I haven't played much golf this summer, just with the courses being closed around the, the Orange County area where I played of at Santa Ana. Um, so I'm going to stick with it. It's working. I'm in a good mental space. So right a couple week, I'm going to be – watching that while playing so it's going to be pretty i don't know exciting to be out there it's going to be really exciting uh, following along with you of course we're going to be paying lots of attention to what's going on in wisconsin uh, we're going to try to figure out what's going on with team usa coming up in a bit you know it never ceases right it, it, it's never ending with the americans there is non-stop drama always with, with this group of stars it seems like Every single week, it's something new. We'll talk about some of Brooks Kepka's comments coming up in a bit. Should he even be there or not? I think that's an interesting question, and especially when there are some other people that might be deserving. But I want to talk about the star, what I think is going to be this week, and that's going to be Whistling Straits. So Golf Digest just put out their new top 100 publics list. Whistling Straits number three. So it goes, one is Pebble, two Pacific Dunes up at the Bandon Dunes Resort, and then three is Whistling Straits. Um, I mean, you could make a case that Whistling could be as high as two there. Um, this is an unbelievable track. It's almost 7,800 yards. Long, long golf course. It's hosted three PGA Championships, a U.S. Senior Open. We've, we're familiar with it. Uh, but Wisconsin golf is really coming onto the scene as what I think is one of the great golf destinations in the world. And Whistling Straits is the centerpiece for all of this. I was just looking at this, the Pete Dye course. Uh, from the, the course rating, 77.2. The slope, 152. Are you kidding me? This has got to be one of the hardest courses anywhere in America, maybe anywhere in the world. Um, I think it's going to be really fun to see these guys. Of course, you know, some of them's probably going to go low. Someone's probably going to still shoot a 64 out there. But this, this is a tough track, and I think there are some really, really fun holes, particularly on the back nine. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, everybody should do themselves a favor and go to Google Earth or Google Maps and just look at an aerial shot of Whistling Straits. And the amount of bunker and sand and just trouble around there, it's pretty incredible the work that Pete Dye uh, and the crew did to to build that place. Uh, it, it blows my mind every time I see it. Um, and what he did is very unique. I, I was reading a book about uh, Pete Dye's projects during his career. And if you look at hole 14, for example, it's kind of a nondescript hole, but it rewards shorter drivers. 
because the way that the angle the green is set, the longer you hit the drive, the less of an angle you have to the green. Now, again, this won't affect tour players that much, but it will affect the um, lower handicap or higher handicap more because the shorter they go, they have a better angle to the green, and with the longer drivers, they just have no angle. So it's all these little intricacies that are really neat. But as far as being 7,800 yards, these guys hit it forever. To make a golf course difficult, they're going to have to make it firm. So when it's firm, their drives will be going 340, 360. So it won't play too long for them for the 700 yards. But yeah. then when you get around the greens, then it's a different story. It's going to be really tough. And I look at like 18, I think, is just a really great finishing hole. They have names for all the holes. Diabolical is what they call 18. 520-yard par 4. Um, that It's just it's absolutely ruthless. But I think the hole that's going to settle a lot of this is 17. That's the par 3. And it's alongside the cliff, right there along Lake Michigan. It's literally a cliff that goes down into bunkers and the long fescue, and like good luck trying to find the ball out of that junk uh, if you miss it there. But they're saying that there's you could hit three wood into this hole. You could hit six iron into this hole. Uh, it's listed at, at 249, but it just depends on the wind blows, how you play this thing. I, I think 17 is going to be the hole that makes or breaks so many matches. I, I think a lot will be happening and determined on that 17th hole. Well, back in 2010 for the PGA, I believe it was, yeah. that Dustin Johnson won, Steve Elkington was in contention. And I was talking to Steve about this one day, and if you watch his back nine, it's on YouTube, you go to the back nine, you watch the hole by hole, he doesn't miss a shot. And he doesn't quite make all the putts, but he gets a 17, I believe he was tying for the lead, and he rips his two iron to this back left flag, and it runs right past it, just trickles by, and it goes down one of the railroad ties. He really didn't have much of a shot, and leads to a bogey, falls out of contention. I think he bogeyed 18, ends up missing the playoff by one or two, and that's the way a hole like that can change the outcome of the tournament. And if you look at the the hole, there's a bunker short right of the green, Um that I read in the book with Pete that Alice Dye has suggested there wasn't enough of an illusion of trouble on that hole. So they went back and forth, and this bunker is this huge, it's called a flash face bunker, which you see kind of a dunesy mound up top and with the sand spilling over. It's a really neat look, but it's pretty far short of where you need to land it. But it looks like it's pushed up right against the green. So it creates this illusion that the guys have to fly it a lot further onto the green in order to get back there where they really don't. If you just clear that bunker, you can kick it off the backside, and it'll spill off onto the green anywhere. Um, and that just kind of goes, and in the book, it talks about Pete and Alice getting into an argument, and of course, Alice ultimately wins um, You know, with the discussions of what to do with certain holes. So that's, I agree, that is a signature hole. It's on the water. Who knows what the winds are going to be doing? And watching these guys hit long irons with all the pressure of the nation riding on it, it's going to be fun to watch. All right, let's take a little deeper dive into what's going on. That's really good stuff, Nico, and interesting points you bring up. But how about the guy that's overseeing the whole thing? All right, being joined now by Mike O'Reilly. He's the director of golf at Kohler, who oversees Whistling Straits, home of the Ryder Cup for this year. We're excited about the Ryder Cup coming to Whistling Straits back on our soil here on the U.S. and uh, pumped up to have Mike with us today. Uh, Mike, I, I know it's a busy week for you getting ready for the Ryder Cup and all that comes with that. Uh, just Maybe uh, can you give us an update on how the course is looking these days and how you guys are feeling going into the Ryder Cup? Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for having me, number one. I appreciate it. We're getting uh, very excited around here. And, and to answer the question, the course looks unbelievable. 
Um, fall in Wisconsin is really the best time to play golf up here, one of the best times. Weather cools down a little bit. The course has had you know, several months to get in the shape, and, and the straights course right now is uh, certainly taking advantage of that. So it's in really good shape right now, and you know, we're looking forward to next week. Yeah, I, I am beyond fired up uh, to see everyone playing out there and how much fun this whole thing is going to be. We, we're a little bit familiar with Whistling Straits from having, you know, this being your fifth major. You guys have had three PGAs there before. What is the difference in terms of like setup and preparation? Obviously, a COVID year probably changes a lot of things on your end as well. But well, what's different about setting up for a Ryder Cup, maybe compared to a PGA? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the size and scope of the event. Um, I mean, to give you an example, we have uh, built about 1.3 million square feet of flooring uh, for the Ryder Cup, and that's roughly twice the size of what we have done in the past for the PGA Championships. Um, so, you know, the scope of the event is just that much bigger. How spectators, you know, make their way around the golf course and how the players make their way around the golf course um, as far as pairings and groupings and things like that, it's just so much different. So um, a similar feel to what we've done in the past, but, you know, really amplified as far as the, the size and scope. Hey, Mike, this is Nico Bellini. i got a question for you as well. Regarding the preparation for the golf course, how early or did you guys shut down the course? Can you kind of give us a little timeline of that, how it works, to maybe give the audience an idea of, of what it takes to go to prepare a course of this magnitude uh, for the Ryder Cup? So it do you guys shut the course down for two weeks, for a month, and it's just, you know, you let all the grasses get healthy and then you slowly start trimming them back um, in order to get perfect conditions for the tournament? Yeah, it's about it's about two weeks is, is what we shut down um, prior to the event, and then we actually open up a few days just after the event. So um, it's not a ton of time that we're actually closed. Um, preparations, I would say, of the turf and of all the grandstands and things like that have really been going on all year. Um, the actual construction started June 1st, um, but obviously we were preparing the turf and we were open for play uh, prior to then. Um, so the actual close time, like I said, is about two weeks before. Um, just gives us a little bit of extra time to not only prepare the course, but there's just so much going on um, as far as vehicles and, and getting you know, all the finite details prepared. It's hard to stay open much longer than that. And as far as those finer details you're talking about, like how much of this is Stricker in a cart going around the course, taking a look at different things, and, and folks from the PGA, how, how, how does that all work in terms of getting the golf course ready to go? Because I know there's only a couple more days to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, right now um, on site there's uh, several hundred workers, um, you know, putting the final touches on, you know, everything that we had had going. Um, Steve Stricker was involved, certainly, as far as how he wants the course to play. Um, that's what's unique about the Ryder Cup when compared to, you know, other events. Uh, the captain has a say in, you know, how he wants the course to play. He made a few small changes. He loves whistling straight, loves the golf course. Um, you know, so he made a few small changes over the past 12 months to the golf course. Um, he has made recommendations on, you know, what he thinks the rough height should be at and, um, you know what he wants the green speed at but at this point it becomes a kind of a committee decision between you know team usa and team europe as far as selecting pin locations key placements uh things like that so leading up to the event team usa has the has the upper hand on preparing the golf course but once we get this close to and during the event it's kind of you know works between uh the two different teams 
That's that, that's really cool. That's a good insight there, Mike. And do you mind sharing some of those decisions or some of those changes that Steve Stricker uh, recommended beforehand, like the previous twelve months? Any like architectural design changes with the you know using getting involved with the Dye family or you know any changes of green constructions or adding tees or shaping of fairways? Any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, nothing really to that level. Um, you know, a few changes made certainly, and if I I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's what we want, Mike. We want that good information. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, and and Steve has been asked that question just last week a couple times, and um, yeah, we're not uh, we're not sharing that information necessarily. What we did, but I will say it's nothing major. Like okay. I said, if, if you didn't know the course really well, you probably wouldn't even notice a difference. Gotcha. That's cool. That's something. Uh, that's something I'll certainly look out. You know, yeah. watching the Ryder Cup. As far as just going back to Whistling Straits and what it's all about, I know that you've been a part of uh, the Kohler family for a long time, and you guys got a lot of great courses out there. Maybe can, can you give us a little background on, on some of the history of Whistling Straits and just how it has become what Golf Digest would say is the number three public course in America, and I'm sure folks in Wisconsin would say maybe it should be even higher than that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, a great ride for me. I feel, you know, grateful and, and blessed every day. Um, you know, golf in Wisconsin has, has grown over the past 30 years. Um, and really thanks to Mr. Kohler and the, the Kohler company and the Kohler family uh, starting Black Wolf Run, um, which is part of our resort as well. We have two courses there, the River and the Meadow Valleys course. Uh, this year we just added a third course there called the Bats, uh, B-A-T-H-S, and it's a 10-hole par-3 course, a lot of fun. Um, Ten years later, uh, we opened Whistling Straits with the Irish course and the Straits course. Uh, kind of turned us into, you know, and then after we hosted the first PGA Championship in 04, I would say that's kind of when we were introduced to the world and, uh, you know, a little um, greater scope and feel of, of who we are as a resort. Um, and, and really since then, many other facilities in the state of Wisconsin have opened and, you know, really expanded. And Wisconsin's really become one of the, top destinations in the country is the, the golf digest rankings for public just came out um and wisconsin has 10 of the top 100 courses um in our state so who would have thought you know wisconsin would be um known for you know some of the best golf in the country so um but it's been a great ride you know for me the kohler family and and what we have here at destination kohler is, is really very very special mike i'll never forget the memory of watching seri Pak beat jenny shasiraporn for the U.S. Open at Black Wolf Run. That really was kind of the events, in my eyes, that put just that golfing area on the map. Were you there? Were you involved? Were you working at the course? Or um, were you at the tournament? Do you have any memories of that event? I I do. I was, uh, let's see, I was 21. I was an intern, I believe, that year working in the golf shop. And I remember uh, I was watching out the window when Jenny uh, made a putt to force a playoff into Monday. Um... And, and, you know, they did an 18-hole playoff at the time for the U.S. Women's Open, so we had that on Monday. But um, really, I think you're right. I think that was, you know, when we were really first put on the world map. And that really, you know, Sayre Pak's win there um, really impacted golf in Korea and Asia, um, specifically women's golf in Korea and Asia. And we see what the LPGA Tour, you know, how many um, Asian players are on it right now. And you know, it goes back to them, you know, the late 90s when, when say, Pak won at Black Wolf Run. So, you know, that's a special moment for us. And, you know, I know that that holds a special place in Mr. Kohler's heart. 
Mike, for you to be a part of that as an intern at 21 years old, when essentially Wisconsin golf gets put on the world's map, and now basically to be overseeing the golf operation of the Ryder Cup being at Whistling Straits, what an incredible journey, what an incredible story. Can you just give us maybe some background on your journey to this point? Because that that is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, like I said before, I'm, I'm blessed. It's, it's a great company. Um, you know, I started as a caddy at Black Wolf Run even before um, when I was an intern. So I started in 90, uh, 1995 wow. would be the year um, when I started as a caddy. And I, I caddied for a few years before then. Um, you know, I've been I've been lucky and, and worked hard. We've, we've got a great team of people. Um, I've worked under a gentleman named Dirk Willis for many years. He's our vice president of golf and um, a few other things. So he oversees a good portion of our business here in Kohler. Um, and we've kind of grown up together. And I feel kind of feel like, you know, the Ryder Cup for us is the culmination of those 30, you know, 25, 30 years. Um, and, and I don't want to call it the end of the chapter number one of Destination Kohler and Kohler Golf, but uh, kind of feels like a nice culmination of what Mr. Kohler has created. Um, and I'm excited for, for chapter two and, and what we can do moving forward. Mike, that that's really an amazing story they have of, of growing, you know, like I said, from the bottom to now you're you're the director of, of golf and Kohler. Do you have any insights or any unique stories about the construction of Whistling Straits, like any kind of nuanced stories of, of, of Pete and Alice Dye saying, you know, we want to put a bunker here and Alice disagreeing with them? You know, those I know they had a very good relationship as far as the construction of the golf course and Pete held his wife Alice in such high regards. Um that she had, you know, major influence in a lot of the decision making for the construction of golf courses. Do you have any kind of tidbits or any unique memories of during construction that people laugh about today? Um, yeah, I mean, a, a couple. Like I, like I said, I was pretty young during the construction of, of Whistling Straits, but there, I do know, um, you know, a neat story. The 17th hole on the Straits course, I would say, if we have a signature hole, um, that's probably it. It's an, you know, an iconic par three towards the end of the round. Um, you know, could be where the Ryder Cup is decided. Certainly some matches will be decided, you know, on that hole. Um, and we have it up in the clubhouse. We have a, a cocktail napkin uh, that Pete designed the hole on. Um, and it is right next to a picture of the actual hole from about 10 years ago. So the completed um, hole and right next to a cocktail napkin where he, he designed it. He was a, a course designer that didn't, you know, sit at a computer and, um, and design it from there he came up with ideas in his head and, and he did it on the ground so um, i did have the opportunity a couple times to walk with him um, on the golf course after uh, we were open and he wanted to make a couple changes to the course prior to 2010's pga championship um, and that was a pretty special moment just to, you know pretty special day just to see how he looked at things and what he was really looking to do you know he's very much into the visual intimidation and um you know the even the best players in the world will look out at a hole and say boy what where am i hitting this ball um because it doesn't look like there's any space but then you get out there and and you see there's a lot lot more space than it looked like so um you know pretty pretty special opportunity for me there and you know he was a big uh big part of the Kohler golf family um and we will we will certainly miss him we wish we could honor him a little bit more or honor honor him by having him here um, the the plaza area, the main entrance area, 
um, is actually called the Die Plaza. As you're, you come into the Ryder Cup, you'll be entering the Die Plaza, um, and I know we're going to be doing a few things during opening ceremonies uh, to, to commemorate Pete. That's great that you guys are doing all of that and appreciate uh, you sharing that story with us. Now, uh, you guys are getting this ready for the Ryder Cup, and now the whole world is going to see, once again, uh, Whistling Straits on display. We know that the course looks tough. We know that the course looks beautiful. uh, But there are a lot of people that see the PGA players here, and they also say, hey, this has got to be on my bucket list. I want to go play Whistling Straits. This last thing for me, what are some of the things that you hear from for people that maybe play Whistling Straits for the first time that aren't PGA players that uh, are just trying to get to a place on their bucket list. Well, what's some of the feedback you get from, from maybe those kinds of players? Yeah, I, I'm often asked the question, you know, um, do you have any advice for playing the straights course? And my, my advice is to the, the 18 handicapper, nine handicapper, scratch golfer, you need to hit the fairway on the straights course. Um, so if you're coming out to play, work on your tee game. Um, and if your driver's not very good, hit a three wood you're going to be much better off in the fairway on uh, 10 20 yards shorter um, off the tee than you would be hitting a driver crooked so um you know advice for people visiting us you know take it all in we're we're well known for the straights course that's the you know where we've hosted where we're going to host the Ryder cup where we've hosted championships in the past but you know as you mentioned before we've hold, held a couple women's majors over at blackwell front um, all four of our golf courses, and then the addition of the par three golf course, um, they're all you know great, great golf courses. So um, all four ranked in the top 100, uh, what just came out in Golf Digest. So you know we've got four of them you know right here in our backyard, and um, plan on playing all four because they're all really good. Well, that's outstanding. Congratulations on that, Mike. I really do appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy the week. We're looking forward to seeing Whistling Straits uh, beautifully on display on our TV sets here in Southern California. Thank you so much. You're welcome, guys. Go USA. Yes, go USA indeed. And that's the amazing thing. I mean, the amount of good golf that is on that Kohler property. And then you have Aaron Hills, which is like an hour away, uh, which is pretty crazy, too. There's a lot of really great golf in Wisconsin. We're looking forward to seeing some of that. All right, some interesting quotes uh, made by Brooks Kepka. And this was in an interview with Golf Digest earlier this week talking about playing in the Ryder Cup. But he says, quote, it's a bit odd, if I'm honest. I don't want to say it's a bad week. We're just so individualized, and everybody has their routine and different way of doing things. It's like now, okay, we have to have a meeting at this time or go do this, go do that. It's the opposite of what happens during a major week. If I break down a major week, it's very chill. He goes on to explain how he spends a lot of time watching SportsCenter and resting. Um, He says, quote, it's tough. There are times where I'm like, I won my match. I did my job. What do you want from me? I know how to take responsibility for the shots I hit every week. Now someone else hits a bad shot and left me in a bad spot. I know this hole's a loss. That's new, and you have to change the way you think about going about things. You go from an individual sport all the time to a team sport one week a year. It's so far from my normal routine. That's Brooks Kepka talking about the Ryder Cup. I want to dive into some of his comments in a moment, but first let me tell you what Paul Azinger had to say about that. Azinger, uh, not holding back any punches here. He goes, I'm not sure he loves the Ryder Cup that much, and if he doesn't love it, he should relinquish his spot and get people there who do love it. Not everybody embraces it, but if you don't love it and you're not sold out, then I think Brooks, especially being hurt, should consider whether or not he wants to be there. And if you add the Bryson dynamic to that, that would be an even easier decision for him. Uh, There you go. Uh, 
Azinger hitting on a lot of different topics there. Let's start first with what Brooks Kepka had to say, and that it doesn't sound like he loves being at the Ryder Cup. He's still a tremendous player. He's still an asset for his golfing ability for Team USA. But what is interesting to me is I, I understand her side a little bit. I understand a little bit of where he's coming from. But what you would just like to see is the mentality of, I know that golf's an individual sport. I am going to do my job, but I'm going to do my job for the sake of a team. We see that in baseball all the time. You know, the, the whole team doesn't step into the batter's box. The whole team isn't on the mound. You have your job. You have your responsibility. And what you do as an individual is good for the whole group. That's what you're trying to do. I have a really hard time understanding why Brooks doesn't see things that way. And I know golf is individual, but I have a really hard time trying to grasp why he refuses to buy into the team concept. And I'm very concerned about Team USA because of stuff like this. You know, I agree with a lot of Brooks' points about this because golf ultimately is an individual sport. And if you're bringing together a group and a collection of the top players in the world and they each have their own schedules and they know how to best prepare for a tournament – why are you going to alter that? Uh, with various team meetings, obviously, I've not played in a Ryder Cup. But from the sounds of it, there's a lot of things and, and a lot of obligations they have to meet during practice. You know, they got practice, they have interviews, they have team meetings, they have vice captain team meetings, and everybody's giving them input on how to play. And all these guys know what they're doing. So Ben Hogan, you know, it's been kind of going viral this week with when he was a Ryder Cup captain about. You know, him saying, I don't care what you guys wear. You know, Duck Sanders, if you want to dress like a peacock, dress like a peacock. I don't care. I'm going to put the straight drivers with straight drivers, the crooked drivers with crooked drivers, <laughs> and Julius Boros, I'm going to send you off first because you don't care about anything. And he's like, all I know is that I don't want to be on this trophy as a losing captain. You know, college golf, I guess, would be a very similar comparison because you go from, as a junior playing individual events. You do a little bit of high school, but high school golf is not really that big of a deal. Then you jump into college. Now you're representing a team. And I'll tell you from my personal experience, I felt pressure to not let my guys down. And that affected my play a lot. When I knew there was guys out there relying on my score, it added pressure. And I didn't like that. Um, So it kind of adversely affected me. I'd rather be like, hey, don't worry about me. Don't even think about me. Just let me go do my thing. And I'll turn my score in afterwards, and hopefully it'll contribute to it. So I see what he's coming from because, you know, Brooks wants to sit there and watch SportsCenter all day. Then you got Bryson DeChambeau's going to hit balls for 10 hours a day. It's completely different attitudes. Now you're trying to get them to, you know, practice and coordination, practice together. You know, I don't blame him. And the captaincy of the Ryder Cup, I believe, has been overblown to a certain extent. Because in the end, and I think the captains know this, in the end, all the guys, they're going to play. I mean, Seve Ballesteros might be the only Ryder Cup captain who willed his team to win somehow back at Valderrama. Um, but I don't, you know, these guys should just be able to do what they want to do. Have maybe one team meeting a night at dinner, you know, and talk about pairings and matches and just get a little rah-rah, you know, who are all going in there. And, and that's all you need to do because these guys, they do know what to do. Now, I think Brooks is just being transparent about it. And, uh, you know, it's it's... With Cantley, he's a pretty individualistic player, I think he is. Brooks seems like that. Then you have guys maybe uh, who are, are very team-oriented that let them do their team-oriented stuff. It's like, and, you know, and again, it's, it's not 
you got to let the guys be themselves and, and do what they do to best prepare them to win the matches. Maybe it's because I come from a team sports background. I don't think you have to be the raw, raw guy. I don't think that you have to have the kumbayas every night and the whole deal. But I will say this much. I think that if you play golf in a more loose way, I think that generally can lead to better scores. It's hard for me to relate to guys that are this good and this talented. But I I just think in most sports, when you're in a more comfortable setting, then that can lead to better play. Try to be as comfortable as you can. The pressure is already so high. I mean, JT said in an interview when he played in his first Ryder Cup that it's a good thing that he was hitting a three-wood off the deck because he couldn't tee it up because he was shaking so much. He was so nervous he wouldn't have been able to put the tee, the ball on the tee. So you think about stuff like that and how much it means to somebody like a, a Justin Thomas. And you know Jordan Spieth has made comments about how much this means to him. Clearly means a ton to Patrick Reed. And maybe it doesn't mean a ton to somebody like Brooks Kepka. Maybe it does. Maybe he is trying to, you know, do this for the sake of his legacy. But I, I do think that there should be a level of, yeah, you're gonna play better if you're all on the same page. You don't have to. You don't. It doesn't have to be a whole full blown team meeting all the time. And every, you know, you don't have to go get beers together every single night. But there should be at least a way to be cooperative with each other and at least therefore not to be animosity. And it does seem like, if nothing else, Brooks's comments, while I, as someone in the media, I appreciate the transparency, if I was his teammate, I'd be furious because this is a, just another distraction that Brooks Kepka is bringing. And every time we talk about Brooks and we talk about DeChambeau, it's one distraction after another with these guys, and it's getting very frustrating. Nobody is more proud to be a fan of the red, white, and blue than I am, and I'm looking at Whistling Straits going, okay, it's on our soil. We got our captain helping set up this course. We have the best players in the world. And I don't think that America has a chance in the Ryder Cup because of all of these external distractions. And that is infuriating to me. And you know the media is going to be talking about it all week. They're going to be talking about Bryson. They're going to be talking about Brooks. They're going to be talking about Patrick Cantley. Are they going to get along? Is a team going to unite? Is a team going to bond? Any sort of, you know, anger output out there for somewhere, some display of anger, a slamming of a club. Oh, my gosh, there must be animosity amongst the, team, the Ryder Cup room. What's going on in there, guys? And the players know this, so I would try to get them to avoid any type of social media, any type of news coverage, because that's going to trickle in, and Europe knows this, and Europe knows this. So you know they're going to be finding ways to to needle at the U.S. team. Yeah. You know, I can see Ian Poulter making comments right off the bat. Oh, you know, hopefully if they, if they pair Brooks and, you know, Bryson together, who knows what we're going to get just needling these guys. Speaking of that, I hope they do pair them together. <laughs> That'd be entertaining. I w- okay, so th- there, are, there are a lot of reasons why I, I like this. And I saw one of the guys from No Laying Up uh, tweeted about this before, and I-, I was 100% on board with it for several reasons. You put those guys together, their skill sets actually match up pretty well uh, to be teammates here. Um, on top of that, I think that you put all the focus on those guys and you're eliminating the distraction from every other group. So even if those two don't click, if it doesn't work out there, like you're forcing them to at least get along for the sake of being teammates. Like you're forcing that to happen. If it works out, then you're winning that match, and now your issue is gone. And now you're, you're playing free golf, and you're playing the way that we all want Team USA to play. If it doesn't work out, well, that's just one team. And the rest of the groups are unaffected by all the nonsense that comes with those guys. I like the idea of those two playing together. I understand that's a contrarian thought, 
But I think that there is a, there is quite a bit of value that could be brought by having Brooks and Bryson together more than just the entertainment. I mean, it, they, it, it could be a disaster, which, you know, and even if it is, so be it, because it would keep everybody else out of the trouble. You know, that's not the worst idea in the world. You have these two guys who are who are the top players in the world. They do have similar games as far as distance, as far as, you know, they're a little crooked sometimes. They're, they're you know, really attacking golf courses in a unique way versus like a Justin Thomas or Xander Schauffele. And I think those attitudes together, they, there's be so much animosity, but they might look at it as like, hey, let's go show the world. I mean, I don't yeah. like you, but guess what? We're gonna go beat you know. We're gonna go beat these guys' their brains out, you know, for this next match. I think it'd be kind of a cool thing where every two years we unite for this one week and we go beat the brains out of the European team, and yeah. then we go back to our own thing. It's like, sure. hey, we're so good, we don't have to like each other and still beat guys. They kind of have that attitude going for them. So you're an SC guy, okay? Mm-hmm. I remember the Pete Carroll mantra: competition brings excellence. I think there's also a level of each one of them would be so desperate to be the star. As petty as they are with their comments in the media, I don't think they're petty enough to put the other in bad positioning. But I do think that there could be a level of competition within each other. You're not even playing against whoever the European pairing would be. You're just trying to beat your teammates. And that could lead to some pretty low scores because they're so interested in trying to beat one another. I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in the, in the concept that Brooks maybe isn't a fit on this team because he doesn't want to be there. And I've heard this, and we read Paul Eisinger's comment a moment ago, but I'm not sure that I necessarily agree. And and it's you know there there have been many teams which I feel like I've seen in my lifetime where there's somebody that you're rooting for them. They're the feel good guy. They're they're going to help you know do little things well. And the superstar is a headache, and he brings drama and all this stuff, but he's still the superstar. He's still the, the best player. He's still there for a reason. I would be fine if, if Brooks were to step away, but I am not willing to give up somebody that talented for somebody that isn't quite as good. That's where my approach would be on that. So I, I hope, you know, I, I'm fine with Brooks being a part of Team USA. I'm fine with him being on this uh, Team USA squad because I, I don't want to see his spot taken by somebody that maybe isn't quite as good, even if they want to be there more. Because I, I think at the end of the day, it still boils down to the lowest scores. I, you know, Brooks wants to be there. I think people are kind of missing that a little bit. I think he does want to be there. His just his issue is the schedule. He's like, I just want to do my own thing. I don't want to be involved in all these team meetings. It's just kind of a, it's a full five a.m. to nine p.m. every day with various obligations. He wants to win. I think he's proud to represent it. He's like, I just don't want to do all this crap. Let me just go play this tournament, play my practice round, practice, and I'm going to go chill and do my own thing. I don't need to be involved. It's not my, it's not his nature to give these pep talks or whatever it is to high five and all that kind of stuff. It's just not him. And tell you what, Bryson, I bet you, would be the guy to go to Brooks and say, hey, let's play together. Like, let's do this. Let's play together. Because oftentimes, You've seen in like I go back to college, you develop little inner rivalries with your teammates. Sure, because I want to beat this guy. This guy wants to beat me. I mean, I can bring on old college teammates who we want to beat each other's brains out. And sometimes I'll be honest with you, when you see a guy not play that great and you're kind of on the fringe, you're like, hey, at least I beat him. So if you don't, if you separate Brooks and Bryson, you're gonna Bryson. If he sees Brooks lose, he's gonna be excited. He's probably gonna be like, oh, good, Brooks lost. Vice versa, if Brooks sees Bryson lose, yeah. he might be like, oh, good, he lost. You know, I'm, I'm over that guy. 
if you put them together, they don't want to lose. They have to win. They have to win. Yeah. So there's there's something to putting those guys together. Let's just play a hypothetical here, and let's say Kepka wasn't going to be there. I know you you and I have talked off air about this. You're a Horschel guy, and you you would think that maybe he would be a fit on this team. Like what what was what was some of the thought process on that? Well, the European Tour put out a very interesting video um, last week during the BMW Championship in Europe at Wentworth. It's kind of their flagship. It's their version of the Players Championship. Okay, and it's got great history to it and. It was cool that Billy went over to play it. He really wanted to win this thing. And I'm not a huge Billy Horschel guy. I was just very intrigued by him bringing around this full-time statistician to every event for the last decade. And I was like, man, for the last decade he's been doing this? So I dug a little deeper, and he's got this guy named Mark Horton who had been working with Brant Snedeker before. And he's a numbers guy. He's a stats guy. So it's very similar to Moneyball, but for golf. So he started working with Brant Snedeker, and a week later, Brant Snedeker won a tournament. So Billy Horschel and Brant work with the same swing coach, this guy named Todd Anderson out of Sea Island. And Billy approached Todd and said, hey, do you think this guy Mark could help me? So for the last 10 years, Mark has kept track of all of his stats. So now when he's faced, when Billy Horschel's faced with an indecisive shot, he has statistics to rely on. For example, you got a par four. That it's not really driver, nor is it a three wood. You can hit either one, but you're uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable. There's OB right. Ah man, I just I don't feel good on this t-shirt. I just need to hit the fairway. Okay, I'll pull up my book or whatever he keeps track on. Say statistically, I hit more fairways with my driver. So you're leaving emotion out. So he pulls driver. He goes, hey, I'm pulling driver because statistically I hit more fairways with this thing. So I'm taking. I have a better chance in the fairway with this club. Same thing with wedges on par fives. If he's laying up on a par 5, he knows from 80 to 95 yards, he makes the most birdies from. That goes to the next step on the green. Okay, from 85 to 90 yards, I make the most putts from uphill right to left. So I'm going to try to leave this wedge shot 10 feet short right to leave myself an uphill right to left because statistically, I make more putts from that angle. So that starts bleeding into, like, does golf become analysis by paralysis? Does it lose its art, the game? You know, versus if I'm hitting a wedge shot, I'm trying to hold it, or I'm trying to hit it as close as I can. I don't care if it's long, short, left, right. I'm trying to put it in a five-foot bucket. But you get to a level, I guess, where it can be natural. Like Bryson. Bryson, everybody thinks you know he's, he's a scientist, and he's got all these thoughts, and he does, but it comes very natural to him. So anyways, they put this video out, and Billy Horschel wins the tournament. It was, it, it was amazing how he goes out there, and he wins the event. I know the guy's a hard worker. Talk about bleeding, red, white, and blue. He wants to be there, and he's got... He's like an Ian Poulter for the U.S. He, he's got this needle that he'll drive into the European team. He's just a pesky competitor, and I think he'd, he'd be a good fit and a guy that you, you know would want to be there. I want to go back to some of the thought on how the analytics are used because I think that is the biggest reason on, on if this thing could be successful or not and how much more we're going to see this in golf. I love the idea of being able to have a number to be able to help you make a decision if you're in an uncomfortable spot. I am somebody that wants to go feel first, but I'm also somebody that's a believer in you play your best when you're as comfortable as you possibly could be. So if there is something that's available for you to help you be more comfortable, then I am all for that. I don't know that I necessarily would want to see a player for their own good 
be leaning towards, okay, I, I have to do everything. This, this, is, this is what the number is. I'm going by the book. This is how I'm going to play my round. Golf is so much a feel sport that what you brought up, that maybe some of these numbers can help make some tough decisions when you're between shots. Correct. I, I am all for that. But I just kind of see that as it's a different kind of paintbrush. You know, if you're if you're you know if golf is an art and you're putting together a, a mural, it's just a, a different kind of brush having this extra information. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's a good thing. I, I think it's it's it can be helpful. But it also I, I don't want to see that be the be all end all. We've talked about this before. You go down to Roger Dunn and you're hitting balls all of a sudden. You're trying to impress the machine instead of what you're actually going to do on the course, and then it's it's pointless. I think that as far as Bryson goes, I, for me, it's too far. It works for him, fine, but it takes a very, very few people have the the thought process to go the way that Bryson does, and many more can see it as an art in the feel that comes with the game. And I think you touched on that. I think Billy. It'd be nice to interview him one day. I think he, you know, when it comes on the West Coast, it'd be fun to discuss this. He probably uses these numbers when he's left with a shot that there's some doubt. If he has doubt, he looks he, he refers to his numbers and says, you know what? Statistically, I'm hitting three wood or driver or whatever straighter, I'm pulling that club out. If there's no trouble distance wise, mm-hmm. like I can't hit it too far and get in trouble, I'll just hit driver. And I think he he utilized that for the, those four or five decisions around where you're kind of in a pickle, you don't know what to do, and you're just going with your gut. Rather than go with your gut, It'd be nice to go with stats, saying, hey, you know what? Numbers prove it. They don't lie. So, yeah, I might miss this fairway with this thing, but statistically, I have a better chance of hitting the fairway with this club. You know, and if you look at, for example, a par four, that's a slight dolly right, okay? And say the fairway is on the left side. Imagine, you know, a par four, dolly right with out-of-bounds both sides, but the fairway is on the left side of that dog leg. Okay, so you have OB both sides, and the fairway is on the left side of that dog leg. So you got to aim closer to that OB on the left side. So a lot of these statisticians say, don't worry about trying to hit the fairway. Aim at the point that's furthest from both out of bounds. So right, it'd be right in the middle of those OB stakes, but the middle target of those OB stakes might be the rough. But he's like, I don't care. Rip it, because we're yeah. just avoiding you making a big number, and you're going to have a wedge in from the rough, maybe in the rough, might be in the fairway, but from the rough, from 80 yards, I'd rather you that than take a three-wood out to the left side and possibly pull it 10 yards out of bounds. Now you're looking at six, or you're left with a seven-iron from 180 yards. Take your chances from the rough of the wedge, because statistically, with the modern technology, with grooves and golf balls, you have better chance of making a birdie from... Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. And I'm just even thinking about my own game, like on the putting green. I'm not a great putter, but I'm putting the best I've ever putted in my life right now. Because lately, if I miss a putt long, I've made every single one coming back. I mean, I could leave myself 10 feet coming back. I'm making it. I think there's a confidence level that comes in that. But I think it's, it's helped my entire game because now I'm not afraid to run the ball past the hole. I'm getting it there every time because I have the confidence that I know I'm going to make it coming back. And you got all those things. Like when you can develop that kind of confidence, it just it, it goes into so many different other elements. And I mean, I think the reason why I've made all the ones coming back is because I see the line better and I watch it the whole way through. I think that's a big part of it. But the other part, too, 
is is that confidence because like once you make like once you make two or three 10 footers coming back like you have a 30 foot putt and you leave yourself 10 feet coming back like man that's a horrible putt but it's okay because i know i'm going to make it coming back all of a sudden now you're not nervous standing over the standing over the ball or all those things i, I and i i do think that like that's now something that's in my brain of hey i can miss long it's okay the the statistics would show that missing long for me is much better for my second putt than missing short. I, if I leave it short, I get a lot of three jacks. Like, that happens a lot. So I, I can understand why the number can help develop confidence for somebody like Horschel. And there's nothing more frustrating than leaving putts short there in the middle of the cup. Yeah. Nothing more frustrating. Yeah, it's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst, and I do it a lot. I'm trying to do less, though. Okay, it's time now for a 19th hole. For today's final thought, this is the 19th hole. All right, so I was up at Bandon Dunes uh, just this past weekend. They currently have five of the top 15 courses on Golf Digest's new 100 Publix list. They have Pacific Dunes, which is two. I think Bandon's at seven. Old Mac at 12. Pacific Trail's 14. And the, the new Sheep Ranch is at 15. Just opened last year. Incredible atmosphere. Incredible experience. The golf is amazing. We'll talk more about that next week. And then we're going to have Tom Coyne on with us as well. Uh, a very uh, renowned author in the golfing world. We're going to have Tom with us uh, to talk about some of the great golf destinations next week. But I, I think the beauty of when you go on a trip like that, yes, the, the courses are amazing, but they also have this thing called the Punch Bowl, which is a, a two-and-a-half-acre putting green with two separate 18-hole like putt-putt courses on it. They change out the holes every day. There's a bar there. When you get there, you play the preserve, a little par-3 course. They have another par-3 course on a second driving range they call shorties. All of these kind of things where you immerse yourself into golf. It is a pure golf mecca. You play 36 holes a day. You walk it all. You putt afterwards, you hang out with your buddies, you have some beverages, you have great food, and you stay on property, and you just basically immerse yourself into golf. That's all you do, and the stakes can be as high or low as you want, but no matter what, it's going to be a good time. Anybody that's been to Bandon Dunes knows exactly what I'm talking about, and we're seeing this more. There are more and more golf destinations out there. Kohler, Wisconsin is one of those. Bandon Streamsong in Florida. I just think this is a beautiful direction golf is heading in because you just get nothing but pure golf bliss for a weekend. Yeah, and then you have Kansas and Nebraska, that they're not necessarily one property, but they're courses very close to each other that you kind of go out in the middle of nowhere and, and same thing, the buddy trip. There's plans, I may not be able to say this, but there's plans to build one up north of Santa Barbara. Um, I think Kohler might be behind it actually as well. Um but that's, you know, to go and get rights for the land, to construct a golf course as a whole other discussion for another day. But they plan on trying to do a 36-hole facility in the central coast of California. Um, and, you know, the home, the place that started it all is Scotland, St. Andrews. Yeah. There's a putting course there. There's a women's society that has this putting course, the Himalayas. I don't know if you've ever seen an aerial of it or photos of it. It's the size of the pouch pole, maybe bigger I mean, it might be half an acre or an acre of just a putting green. Yeah. And they have leagues out there. It, it all started 100 years ago. It's amazing. And now the U.S. is finally adopting all these principles and practices. And Well, I think that that's the thing that, that people want. Like, you can go out and you can have your round. And, you know, I, saw, I, I was seeing guys coming off Pacific Dunes and they were shooting 93s and 
you know, whining and moaning and groaning about the pin placements and all this kind of stuff. But an hour later, all that is forgotten when you have a transfusion in your hand and you're slapping around putts around the punch bowl. And then you get ready for dinner and then you go and you have a nice time and all that. And I, and I think that's where memories are made. And I'm glad that there are people that are seeing this. First of all, it's a cash cow. They're, they're getting 900 rounds a day up there at Banded Dunes between the five courses. And there's rumors of a six course that's coming in. You can understand why somebody would want to do that but i mean there, those places exist I, I think monterey was one of those maybe it wasn't designed to be that but it is become a, a golf mecca like that obviously pinehurst i think was kind of the first one yep. that really did something like this but uh, i was so impressed by the bandon experience it wasn't just about the great golf courses and we played 103 holes and i probably 95 of them were among the most spectacular holes i've ever seen it was one of those kind of places that every it's one after another i remember the 17th at sheep ranch my buddy hits a five iron puts it up in the air it's a 115 yard hole he left it 30 yards short i hit a knockdown punch six 115 yards, punch six, and I somehow got the ball to stay on the green. It just barely held on and didn't go off the back. But, I mean, it's that same hole, the wind dies down, you're hitting a sandwich into it. I mean, it's one of those kind of plays. It's cool to see that in the United States. You just don't get a whole lot of that, but you're seeing more and more of it. And I think it's a good thing because, quite frankly, it's really, really fun. The putting greens. I mean, Santa Ana Country Club, we built a putting green that was half used to practice, and then the other half was built in – you know, reverence or, you know, in the same style as those Himalayas where it's meant for putting contest. It's not meant to really practice. It's meant for putting contest to have fun, grab a cocktail and go out there and enjoy yourself. The only thing I would say to some of the people listening right now, you're not Tiger Woods. Way too many people go up there thinking that they're Tiger. And then on the other side of that, there's way too many people that are trying to go have a weekend bender as well. If you find the, if you make those your buoys and you're able to keep it in between that, I think you can have a pretty nice time. Have respect for everybody else and everybody uh, gets to have some fun. All right. I want to thank Michael Riley who joined us from Kohler to talk all about whistling straights. Thanks to Aaron Fry who helped us out behind the glass today. My partner, Nico Bellini. My name is Trent Rush. Thanks for listening. This has been Russia on the Lakes.